Welcome, 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 everybody, to a live stream edition of In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. I am your host, Ryan Roxy, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for making it out on the old YouTube or Facebook Live, any of these live stream platforms we have it on. If you are listening to it on one of your favorite platforms other than that, whether it's Spotify or Apple or any of the other type of uh, podcast platforms, make your way on over to uh, the old... YouTube world and uh, come check out, be part of the chat because there's a lot of people in the chat today and for good reason. Um, Today is one of those days where I think we have, I always say I'm excited about doing the show, but today a little extra excited about doing the show because uh, me and this gentleman, we met um, a few months ago. I've been sort of, I, I feel like I've known him my entire life because so many of the bands that I've actually learned from and been influenced by he's been a part of as you will find out um and i think that he's probably one of the best uh sort of examples of <coughs> that is in the trenches you know it has been in the trenches he's been in a pretty nice trench though i must i must say <laughs> and but but we're going to go dive into that and uh, basically I just, I'll welcome him into the trenches. I know that you guys know him. You definitely know every band he's ever played in. Um, but would you please welcome to In the Trenches, Mr. Davey Johnstone. Welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Good to see you, man. It's great. I know that you're from, uh, we are broadcasting via Stockholm through our producers uh, sort of lair that's in Arkansas and making it all the way over to uh, California. And there's a little bit of a delay. So today we're going to have to be a little bit weary of the uh, delay factor, which is fine. It's no problem. But um, I will sort of let you take some time for you to get the delayed answer and then make it happen. So welcome for, uh, thank you for making it out so early on this uh, day. And I just wanted to welcome you to In the Trenches. It's been a while since we saw each other. I think the last time we did see each other, you we were on stage together at an Alice Cooper concert in New Zealand. And that was basically our la- one of our last shows that we did for this year. How about yourself? God, absolutely. Um, you know, that was a fun night. Ryan, because it was just coincidence. Well, you know those coincidences, uh, coincidences that happen to guys like us who are traveling all the time. Um, and when Alice, actually, it was Alton told me Alice was going to be playing in New Zealand when we were there. And um, I always keep in touch with him. I, I love Alice and Cheryl, and um, just reached out to him and he said, "Hey, listen, I'm playing tomorrow night." somewhere near Auckland and you know why don't you come and get on stage and initially I wasn't real comfortable with doing that uh, just because I was in the middle of a tour and I thought well you know I'm on a night off I just want to enjoy Allison and the band and, and yourself Ryan it was just an awesome show by the way and um, and Cheryl got back saying oh you know what he'd really like it if you if you got up so I was like of course I will I'd love to you know I just needed a bit of prodding but yeah, it was great fun getting up with you guys and, and playing schools uh, and just just wonderful. Um, I adore Alice, man, and, and all you guys. What a band. That was I that was night. so blown away by your Man, you guys are, are happening. It was a wonderful, wonderful show. And it was great for me just to get out and, and see old friends and meet new friends. 
Exactly. Well, for those of you that are listening and you hear Davey just mentioning these names like Elton and Alice, like very casually, it's because he can. He has the total right to because he is uh, Elton John's longtime guitar player. Um, For years and years, Elton John's guitar player. Plus, he also played in the Alice Cooper Band uh, for a few years as well. And so many other artists, which we are going to dive into. But, um, you know, it all started for you. I guess it would be in the UK. You're born. I, I, I see that you you're in Los Angeles now. So born in Edinburgh, you haven't really lost the accent too much. Have you? <laughs> Um, some would probably disagree, but no, I've, I've, I still have a lot of the brogue, especially if I'm talking to another Scot, then it really comes out, you know, then, then you need an interpreter. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in Scotland and had a great childhood and stuff and, and, um, but I was always being drawn to the USA, uh, mainly by the music because my two older sisters, uh, used to play their 78s, believe it or not, of 78 Yeah. I was Hog and Jailhouse Rock, and so it was kind of like, what is that? I want to do that. You know, and this is when I was five. And then, of course, you know, when the Beatles happened, and I'd be about 11 or something, and I started learning guitar like every kid wanted to do. Um, so, but I was always being pulled to America. So um, just recently, I, I got my U.S. citizenship. So um, my wife and I both did. My wife, Kane, and I both got our citizenship. So we can vote in November. So look out. There you go. Uh, so I'm happy about that. That's very good. Well, before the States happened, La- uh, London happened. And it was one of those many coincidences that I see the two of us having. Obviously, I'm not even going to compare myself even close to your career because you're you've played with so many amazing artists but we do have one thing in common that at the age of 17 I moved away from my hometown which is Northern California down to Los Angeles which was the mecca of music at that time at the same age 17 you moved from Edinburgh down to London and you bashed it out for in the clubs but then we're not I wouldn't say quickly but you you got noticed right pretty soon to and that's where the first Elton sort of opportunity came correct or not no that's absolutely right I mean I when I left Edinburgh and you know by the way when you leave Scotland to go to London it's not far in in miles maybe like 400 miles but it's it could be 4,000 miles or 40,000 miles because it, there really wasn't a lot for me to, to uh, a lot further for me to go in Scotland. I'd been playing mainly folk music. And uh, one time in a club I was playing, and it was a, a great pub when I was 16, of course, uh, near Edinburgh. And this Irish guy, Noel Murphy, was playing. Um. I used to play some pretty hellacious banjo in those days. And um, playing, if you're ever in London, look me up. So, of course, when I decided to to leave Edinburgh when I was 17, I I literally went to his door and I banged on the door. I said, well, what the fuck are you doing here? And I said, well, you said, look you up if I'm ever in London, here I am. So it was that story, that, that kind of vibe. And um, we enjoyed a lot of 
great time. I immediately joined up with this guy, and it was a folk situation where he was singing uh, a lot of Irish stuff, Irish and Scottish tunes on the banjo and the mandolin. Right. So we had a little bit of that one of those Wi-Fi mishaps, which is going to happen. It's okay. I've learned how, I've learned now not to freak out when those sort of things happen. But the story that you were telling is very much like, you know, the mecca of, the, of what we all fantasize what London was like during those early 70s years. And I know that the producer Gus Dungeon had a big part of bringing you in. I mean, I think it was from Magna Carta was noticed then into Elton John's uh, audition. And that first album that you did, um, I know that Madman Across the Water, you played that song and you also played on Holiday Inn because you were, you were not just a guitarist. You were, you even played sitar, a little bit of a hippie, if you might. (laughs) Totally. Absolutely. In fact, I think that's why I was getting more work than regular other guitar players because I played mandolin, banjo, sitar, dulcimer. Um, all of that kind of stemmed from my folk music days. Um, so when Gus, who was a dear friend, by the way, one of my best friends, I'm just, I miss him every day. Um, when he, We used to hang out a little bit and have pizza together and stuff like that and talk about music. And he used to tell me about this guy called Reg, that he was the singer-songwriter. <laughs> this guy he called was, Reg. He was working with. And that's the last time you'll hear me calling him Reg. Right. He does not like to hear that. Well, that's um, like that's like calling but, Alice you know, Vince, right? Isn't it like calling Alice? Like, so when people say, oh, I know Alice. He's, his real name's Vince. It's no, no. His wife calls him Alice. His mother calls him Alice. So Elton <laughs> is Elton. <laughs> exactly. And I do remember, actually, coincidentally, the, the, the day when Elton sat us down when I was already in the band and he said, okay, very seriously, he said, okay, you have to stop calling me Reg. This is everybody, me and Dee and Nigel, you know, I, I need you to start calling me Elton. That's <laughs> going to be my name from now on. I've, right. I've changed it legally. That's it. No more fucking Reg. That's it. You know? So, um, yeah, it was just, it was amazing times when I, when I was asked to do, um, Madman Across the Water, that was Gus who said, look, this guy is making this album and it's, it's, it, he's getting a lot of interest in America and stuff. And I was happy to do any gig. You know what it's like, Roxy? You know what it's like, man. You don't turn any gigs down. You say yes to everything. So when I was asked to do that, yeah. So I showed up at Trident Studios and um, this guy playing the piano was extremely quiet, extremely shy and didn't say a word, wouldn't really give eye contact. He was very, very reserved. And so I was kind of more outgoing and I was able to say, well, hey man, what do you want to do? How do you want to do? And they said, well, he has this song and here's the riff. And they, he played me the, the, his piano take on Madman. And he said, but we'd like guitar to start it. So what do you think it should be? So I picked up my acoustic and played this thing. And they said, oh, that's it. That's what we want. So I was kind of in straight away with um, because I tend to be one of those guys who likes to make other people sound better. I'm not such a great front man myself. I'm definitely more of a side man. So um, that's always been my, my thing in my career is to is to make the song better or to make the whole thing better. I'm not one of those guys that likes to play 
80 million notes per song. I, I like to, to work with the meat of what I'm, what I'm supposed to be, you know, making better. That's why I am going to say you are the quintessential guest for In the Trenches. You are now a quint. You are now the In the Trenches icon, old you know classic rock <laughs> icon for this show because that's what it is all about. I do I do preach that, and a lot of guests that come on always they you know they have a lot of accolades, they have a lot of um, credits to their name, but they always revert back to the song and what they're playing does improves the song. And I know that your style, your parts, and your personality have all allowed you to play in such iconic bands like oh, we're, I'm we're, we're mentioning Elton John, we're mentioning Alice Cooper, which already is enough just to say, hey, check out my resume. But then you have other artists like Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, which I don't want to get the two of you guys speaking together because we would need a translator probably. Um, then you get Stevie Nicks. I mean, meatloaf for Christ's sake. I mean, there's, oh, that's a great picture of you and Stevie. You guys worked so with so many different personalities. Is, is there something to do, not just the plane, but does it have to do with the way you can get along with people that allows you to play in so many different types of situations? Oh, I think that's a, a huge point, Ryan. Um, for example, with Stevie, I mean, we all in the studio got on so well. I mean, I loved what Stevie was doing anyway. And I loved uh, Jimmy Iovine, who was producing uh, in those days. And um, also the, the people, the core band, um, Stan Lynch played on a lot of this stuff, and also Russell did, Russ Kunkel. And uh, Bob Glob was a bass player. Waddy and I were playing guitars. Waddy would tell. And, um, yeah. yeah, and Mike Campbell was in on a couple of songs, and Jesus. Roy Bitten was playing piano. It was just a beautiful core group. And I think in any situation, and you'll know this from, from being Alice's, you know, MD, Alice's, you know, band leader kind of thing, if you, it's all very well when somebody plays great, but if they have the asshole temperament, it's not going to work. You know, you have to try and find the right personalities to fit what you're doing, you know. Um, and it's not going to always happen that way. I mean, you're always going to have, I mean, there's always some hilarious things that happen uh, through different personalities <laughs> in the band. But to me, that's as important as, almost as important as a musical thing. Because if it's not working where people can enjoy each other's company and laugh and take the piss out of somebody without it being a, a big deal, then it, it's going to fail, you know? So I've always tried to promote that, that thing of, of people getting together. Well, I want to clarify just a couple things because I know I'll hear backlash. I'll get back blowback from it. If I don't, there is no official muse MD in the Alice Cooper van. There is like a bunch of, there is a collective and I'm very careful about that. We all kind of know our roles because we know whose name is on the marquee. But that being said, I do, I do agree with you. It's not, it's not what you play on stage. You have to play the right parts. You have to play, you have to be, in tune, on time, good, everything on stage working. But it's more sometimes how you hang on the bus with these people. And like I said, I, I have... The bus? Hanging Did you say on, bus? Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Tour, <laughs> airplane. Yeah, I, oh, I, I forgot. You're on a different level. <laughs> All right. It's been a long time since Davey has flown commercial. 
I'll just say that. All right. <laughs> um, but I, but I do want to throw out, and it's about giving thanks and credit to everybody else in the band. I think that's important too. That's why I want to give credit today to everybody that's obviously the crowd that's watching this podcast. I appreciate that. And you guys hanging out in the chat room, of course, if you're there, uh, just subscribe to the YouTube channel right there. And just thanks for listening if you're in your car right now. But also, especially our producer, Vic Chalfant, who makes all the great overlays, who just put up that shot of you in that nice jumbo jet with Elton John, as well as our good friend uh, Jansen Press, who helped me a lot with the uh, preparation for this script on this week's, because he was actually a really big fan. And you're talking about... uh, you're talking about people that are of all different generations that have grown up with your music and the bands and all the different types of bands you played with. You also, there, there's, an, there's a great comment. Isn't it noticeable that legends like Davey are so humble? And I always say that the people, the bigger the name that I get to hang out with and get to talk to, the more it seems like they make me feel like the most important person in the room. And that's a really good quality to have. How sweet is that? Thank you, man. Uh, thank you, uh, Kathy, I think it was, for, yeah. for saying that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Ryan. I, I, you know, there are so many amazing people in this business. And frankly, I've only met a couple of assholes, uh, you know, in my long career. Um, I think a lot of that's press and, 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 and stories and reputations and different things. But I mean, I've been, maybe I've just been really fortunate or maybe I just demand people not to be an asshole. You know, I mean, uh, everybody I've met, I mean, and my favorite kind of people apart from the name people that I've met, like Alice or Lenny Kravitz, it was a dear friend, is a dear friend, but I haven't seen him for quite a few years. Um, I love Eddie Vedder. We're, he's just one of those guys who's a, a soul brother of mine. And, and Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains and Mike Inez. All those guys are, are, are great guys. And, and uh, one of my dear friends, Denny Sywell, doesn't live too far from me, who played in the original Wings band with Paul. And um, he was with them for a few years in the early 70s. And, um, you know, you meet people all through your career. I mean, another classic example of a great person and i'm not believe me i'm not name dropping here these are guys that i I talk to on a regular basis but people like joe joe walsh i mean there's a guy who is so encouraging to all artists regardless of what their music does as long as you know as long as it's decent as long as you can get your there's some meat in the in the music you know uh he's been really helpful to me and to to many artists and not just about music just about life in general and i've known joe since um since 1975 you know he used to open for us on some big concerts and um yeah as i say i haven't really met um many many assholes and if i did i'm not going to talk about them on this <laughs> no there's no need to you don't there's too there's too much room to talk about the positivity and that's what i try to focus the show on i don't you know the occasional sound bite which nobody ever heard or nobody ever uh suspected might be kind of great to get out of the show but other than that i want to talk about the crazy relationships that you guys sort of form, especially back in this heyday of this seventies rock. And you're, you're in Alice's band in the early seventies. You, you go from a, a more of a, a keyboard piano 
driven type of band to all of a sudden, and this Alice has never changed. It's always wanted to be guitar, loud rock guitar. And I know that Elton had his definite, there was, you were that element of that heavy guitar, but how was that transition going from the Elton band to the Alice band? That was wild. Um, it was something that I, I'd never imagined I would do, but after, um, what, five years of complete madness with, with Elton. I mean, we had such a ride, especially that first one. I kind of look at it in two sections because 1971 through 1977 was all the early classic things that we did. And it was just like a ridiculous ride. And I loved the music. And it, yeah, you're right. It was one uh, very keyboard guitar four-piece band really and then when ray cooper joined of course uh we added the percussion but really there was only four or five guys in this whole thing that was it um people may have associated with larger amounts of people but no it wasn't it was a very very close-knit small group uh gus Dejan and paul buckmaster unfortunately both gone now um were just an amazing part of that whole thing so yeah after this very kind of uh, eclectic musical ride with Elton and Elton decided to retire, take some time off. So when I got the call from uh, Shep, Shep Gordon, Alice's manager, um, about, so why don't you, you're not doing anything right now. Why don't you go on tour with Alice? He'd love to have you play guitar. I was like, wow, I didn't expect that call. (laughs) And I thought, well, why not? Because I've done a lot of other things, but I certainly have not played any, you know, hard rock heavy metal type stuff and um because let's face it alice really is he is the godfather of all that stuff i mean he did start all that stuff i don't no care what anybody says he's the man and um and you can see it by where he's at right now we're still doing that stuff and still attracting people who love that kind of music um but yeah it was quite a it was a thrill for me because i'd known alice uh, through the 70s, and I'd always really got on great with them. We had a great time, lots of laughs together. And uh, so when when I got that, that offer, it was like, this is going to be great. And we had a blast. Alice and I had a blast on the road for a couple of years. And then uh, I went. To, we went on holiday to, to Maui together. Uh, to, we stayed at Shep's place out there in, in Wailea. They still which, do it. They still do it every single year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we uh, and we had ideas for what was going to be um, his next album to come out in the in nineteen eighty, Flash the Fashion, which was great fun to make with uh, Roy Thomas Baker producing wow. and and. But when we were in Maui, there was so many ridiculous things happened, but we had a blast. And you know what? To this day, Alice remains. You know when you hear, "Oh, he's the nicest guy in show business." Well, Alice fits that to a T. He really is the nicest guy in the business, you know, and there are a few people who I can hang that tag on, which is good. But Alice really is one of the dearest people I've ever met. And one of the funniest too. Oh, yeah. um, he's, as, he's as funny as Elton because Elton's really sharp. He's super smart. <laughs> um, let, me, let, let me give you an, an idea about Elton's humor. Okay. Yes. And it's a little inside thing about the band. Because you, as you know, bands develop their own their own language, 
Oh, yeah. Their own humor. And it's something that a lot of outsiders don't necessarily understand what they're talking about. So it's handy sometimes. So we're sitting on the plane one day, and it was early on. It was like 1973. And Elton just looked at me across, you know, a little table. And he said to me, Wasp, Wasp, Monarch. Now, my immediate reply was like, what? And he said, Wasp, Wasp, Monarch. So I thought about it for a second. I said, oh, B.B. King. And from there went this, you know, spawned this whole new game, which we used where you take, you know, letters and, <sighs> and, and maybe fish and, and develop them into people's names. So we spent hours laughing and screaming <laughs> at names, you know, like you'd get, he'd say to me, Precipice Dick, what? Cliff Richard. I mean, there was all these wonderful names that came from this game, but Wasp Wasp Monarch, BB King, was a brilliant way to start that. So it's an example of how band, you know, culture, band, band language really makes a difference on the road. You can create your own camaraderie and your own, well, I call it in the bubble. When, when, when a band is on tour and we're, we're basically in a bubble already. We're already socially isolating. You know, we're already socially distancing in one way, you know, for years. We're kind of used to that, I guess. And you've been used to it in, in, in a much bigger sense. Um, but I wanted to talk about, before we, we, we get this uh, comment up, I wanted to talk about um, a specific thing that you had done, a, a specific sort of band camaraderie joke that you relived when I first met you because you and Cheryl Cooper went up to each other and you, and you did this sort of, you, you kind of either she did it to you or you did it to him. You just made a thing. You said, bang, you're dead. And then somebody just dropped. And, and here's the thing about this. I want you to tell the story and then I want to tell you what I did later that night or, or, the, or I think at the next show, which was the last show of the tour. So how did this tradition of bang your dead start with the Alice Cooper band when you were in it? Uh, this started, uh, on the road, of course, when you know things get a little bit tiresome and you're traveling and maybe walking through airports. In fact, the first time I experienced it was walking through an airport somewhere in the Midwest. And um, Cheryl had a giant thing of popcorn, like a movie-sized thing of popcorn. And she was walking along chewing the popcorn and we were waiting for our flight connection to wherever. I think we were playing like somewhere in the corn husker. In fact, our band was called the Cornhuskers back then. <laughs> Alice was intent. That's going to be your your name, Alice Cooper and the Cornhuskers. Oh my! So <laughs> we're walking through the airport, and and one of the singer, one of the dancers, uh, I think it was Clifford, turned round to Cheryl, seeing that she had this giant thing of popcorn, and he just went, "Bang, you're dead." Now, when somebody did that to you, you had to make the most of your fall of your death, as it were, you know, everything would go up in the air, you'd drop everything and you'd do this movie style fall on the floor. Well, imagine in an airport, Cheryl Cooper 
when this guy Mock shoots her with bang, you're dead. She the popcorn goes up in the air, her bags go that way. She does this amazing, you know, fall on and the and people are looking around going, My God, is that girl okay? And uh, and we're just laughing and uh, and that's kind of the way it, it, it developed and it would get kind of messy. Uh like if you're in a bar, you know, before or after the show and somebody went bang, you're dead. It would be pretty awful, you know, the, the, the messes we made. But we always found a way of, you know, oh, my God, my friend slipped or, you know, he's epileptic or some shit. And, and uh, you know, it's one of those on the road games. You know. Oh, the oh the early 70s, the things you could never do in 2020, because then all of a sudden there'd be some sort of protest about it. Right. Bang your dad would be basically a meme. <laughs> you turn it into a meme. Oh, yeah. protest yeah <laughs> unbelievable it's not, it's not gonna happen now it's not gonna happen yeah wow well um i wanted to move on a little bit because i i, I like i said there's getting back to the elton and alice and i wanted to sort of maybe an urban legend an urban an urban legend that i wanted to sort of clarify because it might have been okay. maybe it's true or not but um you, you said about this Elton having a great sense of humor and Alice Cooper having a great sense of humor. Was there ever any sort of correlation between Alice Cooper and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road? Because I know that there was, it's a song about, it was the first time that, that Elton had sang about a homosexual sort of relationship. It was a woman that had, passed away and I know the story and it, but there was a rumor going around that it, it kind of might have had something to do with Alice Cooper at that time and his fashion and what he wore and is there any sort of truth to any of this nonsense I'm sort of looking up in the internet <laughs> no <laughs> okay great I'm glad I'm glad that I I spent three minutes trying to explain something that has no <laughs> 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 no, I, I can. I I just know that obviously you know Alice and, and Bernie have always been good friends. In fact, Bernie wrote all the lyrics for one of Alice's great albums from the inside. Right. Um, but no, uh, you know we were so entrenched in, pardon the pun, we were so entrenched in doing our own stuff back then. I just remember there was one album after another, and in the case of Yellow Brick Road, we tried to make that album. Uh, in Jamaica first, we went to, I guess, because uh, Mick and, you know, the Stones had said, oh, we've just recorded down in Jamaica and it's the greatest studio. And and uh, so we thought, well, we've done three albums at the Chateau, two albums at the Chateau. Let's try somewhere else. So we all flew down to Jamaica and um, we spent the first four or five days getting completely out of it on the local ganja and having a great time and stuff. And then we tried to go in uh, and record and we knew it was going to be a challenge when we heard uh, the engineer shouting to, I guess, a, a studio, you know, helper, uh, Carlton, get the microphone. And we all thought, get the microphone. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's a really good we one. Though. <laughs> knew we were in trouble. I mean, because, I mean, we used we used like six or eight mics on the on the drums alone and a couple for ambient noise as well. So we knew we were in trouble. So we, we basically spent a couple of weeks down there just partying, having fun. And and um, 
we really laughed such a lot. There was one point, I don't know if this will make any sense to you guys, <clears throat> but in those days, we didn't have um, roadies or techs that carried our equipment for us, you know, pristinely. Um, we literally put our instruments on the on the carousel in London and got them out again at the other end in, in Jamaica. I mean, this was this was the end of seventy two, beginning of seventy three, and so it was pretty basic. And so I had all my instruments just put on and stuck in the hold of the plane, basically. So. When we got to the studio in Jamaica and I, I was undoing things and taking guitars out and restringing them and stuff. Yes, folks, I do my own stringing sometimes. <laughs> and, um, and you know, Elton was at the piano and he was trying to work out a couple of, couple of lyrics and, um, and he was playing something. And I think it was Sweet Painted Lady and uh, he just he was writing it. And my thought was, oh, a banjo would be good on that. So I started unlocking my banjo case and I opened it up and I was kind of concentrating on what he was doing. So I wasn't really looking at the, the banjo. And he was singing and trying to work out the next chord and Nigel and Dee were kind of around the piano and looking. And so I went down and picked up my banjo by the neck, which is what you do to lift up an instrument and picked it up. And only the neck came away with the strings all. Ouch. That was it. Ouch. Um, in transit. So the picture of me holding this neck of the banjo with all these crinkly strings, that was it. Elton fell off the piano. The, the guys, D and Nigel, fell on the floor. And we laughed for about 20 minutes, literally. I mean, nonstop. Nothing to do with what we were smoking, of course, but, but we Nothing laughed for like a long time. And then finally... Elton was like getting his breath back and he said to me, wow, that's funny. What kind of organ was it? Now, he meant to say banjo, obviously, but he said organ and that was it. We were gone for another 30 minutes <laughs> and we laughed again. And so you know, for one reason or another, we just couldn't get the album done in Jamaica. So Yellow Brick Road might have been made there, but no, we went back to the Chateau and we actually cut that whole double album in 16 days uh, with everything, all the overdubs and everything done. The spirit, crazy. the spirit of it was, was sort of based in Jamaica, but then, then you completely dove and mastered it over there at, at where in your comfortable surroundings. Now, Vic, do you have that shot of that uh, banjo that we can just put up real quick? No, he's shaking his head. Uh, you know what? I, I always call our producer to to get these things. Like, can you just do this on the fly? And then, and then I expect him to do it, but no, he didn't do it. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. Um, well, I, I have a personal story about one of your albums because it was back in the days when you could, uh, I guess, rent. No, you wouldn't rent. You would check out albums from a public library. They actually had vinyl albums that you could get from a public library. And I ended up getting uh, Rock of the really? Westies. Yeah. I, 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 I ended up getting Elton John's Rock of the Westies. Ended up being one of my favorite albums of all time. Never returned it. So to this day, I think my public library late fee is in the millions. It has to be. But but I just remember that entire I, I, for me, back in those days, it was all about the experience of sitting down with the vinyl 
reading the liner notes, and then checking out the album cover artwork. And you guys were in on the. I remember the back cover. You're on some. You're in some sort of backwoods shack. That's a band photo, and I just remember the songs because I gotta yell hell and just it's just the way the album starts out and it's just such a great uh album for me but during those times was that sort of the end was that a transition of one era into another for you absolutely um that what indeed was it was um right about Christmas of 1974 um and Elton and I had gone to see a couple of bands. There was a Warner Brother package on, and we'd gone to see um, a couple of our favorite bands, uh, Little Feet, uh, the Doobies. Um, there was a Warner Brothers package. Um, who else was on it? Oh, Grand Central Station. I mean, it was just a crazy show. It was so great. And we got back from the show, and he was hanging at my place, and, and – um, we were just sitting around having a late, very late cup of coffee and whatever else. And um, and he said, you know, I want to change the band. And I remember being totally shocked because, well, Dean Nigel and I and Elton were like a family. We were so close. Absolutely. And we'd had so much success. And we just made Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. And it was probably this pinnacle of where we had what we had done and he wanted to change the band so he said I, I want to change the band but i'd like you to stay and i'd like you to help me put together the new band and i was like wow once i got over my shock it was like okay well i can understand you know any artist might that you have to do what you think is right for yourself for your music and for your growth where you might want to go i said i think you're going to i think you're going to hurt a lot of people not just Dean Nigel at the time, but you're going to hurt a lot of people who are fans, who who adore the whole band uh, and who are into the whole thing that you do. So, yeah, he took some flack for it, but, hey, you, you have to grow. You have to change. That's just a fact of life, I think. So, you know, we decided to um, to bring Caleb back, who was a dear friend of all of us, and he'd worked with Elton in the really super early days. Uh, we decided to bring uh, Roger Pope, who was a drummer in Hookfoot. That was Caleb and Roger's band in those days. Uh, Kenny Passarelli, we, we loved the idea of Kenny because he played with Joe Walsh, and we loved the, the Barnstorm record by Joe. We just That was our favorite album of the time. Uh, we were introduced to James Newton Howard by, by Elton's agent, Howard Rose. James has become, has stayed one of my dearest friends uh, on the planet to this day. In fact, I'm spending the 4th of July with him this weekend. Um, so we suddenly had this band, and Ray Cooper stayed with uh, to make up the big band, and we we hired a couple of background singers. So suddenly we had this totally new band, and it was like, well, how are we going to do this? And straight away, I had the job of putting it together, which I did, and and that was that was fine, and I loved it. But when we came to making the first album by that new band. Um, we went back to Caribou Ranch, uh, where we'd done Captain uh, Fantastic. And so when you saw that backdrop of that photo you were talking about, right. that's right there, basically right outside the studio. And, and it was just such an awesome uh, location. We, we loved it. We made 
another few albums there. Um, and it was a whole new thing, having to work with new guys. And when you work with on on with uh, on stage with a certain group of people, it's very different from working live, uh, from working in the studio with them. So that became another challenge. But you know what? We just threw ourselves into it. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, we've always worked quickly. We don't spend a lot of time on our albums. We like to go in there and get things done in the first, first, second or third take, whatever, really fast, get it fresh. And, um, and, and the thing about Yell Help, I think that was the first song yep. that Elton and I wrote together. But, okay. you know, I, I just started this, this guitar riff and, and, and he was like, oh, I love that. And he immediately grabbed the lyric and pulled something out and said, this will work. And we immediately went into this jam thing. So the new band at that time was a lot more um, collaborative, shall we say. And it had to be that way because it was a bigger band. Right. You know, suddenly we had to try and bring everybody into the whole picture. And, and we had a, so much fun with that band for the next couple of years. I mean, it wasn't as long a run as the, as the original band, but um, it was full of a lot of incredible live shows, especially. And then we made another album called Blue Moose. It was a double album. Um, and we toured with that album through 76. And then end of that year, Elton basically said, you know, I got to have a break. I'm done. I'm burnt out. And that's when we disbanded for a couple of years. Mm. And uh, quite honestly, we all needed a bit of a break. And, <laughs> and about six months after this, when Alice uh, joined me in his band. So. Well, do you think that that experience, that whole Rock of the Westies experience, did that open you up to being the musical director, which you are to this day of the Elton John band? Or had you already experienced that before of putting it in? Because if you guys are just tuning in right now, we are with Davy Johnstone of the Elton John band and so much more, so much more as we will get into. Uh, welcome to the In the Trenches podcast. If you are just tuning in, please subscribe to that YouTube channel right now, but you have so much to go back and and catch up on what we've been going through. But getting back to that, being the musical director currently of of Elton John, did did that experience? When when did that start? When did you actually feel that okay, now I'm a, I'm a higher gun with Elton John to like now I'm a band member, now I'm the MD. Um, I don't know exactly when it started because it was always kind of one of those unwritten things. Right. Um, you know, if you have the kind of personality, um, and well, in my case, the knowledge of what has come and people trust your take on them, they'll, all, they'll just gravitate to your, whatever you think this could be a cool thing. Well, that's Dodger stadium on that picture. And that was a couple of days unbelievable couple of days such a great um, shot yeah i think it officially started sometime in the early 90s i think um because by then elton had changed personnel so many times and we had different different wonderful musicians in the band and normally i would be the guy to bring the new players in um especially in the case of i think it really started maybe let's say about 87 86 maybe when Elton called me and said, I want to change the whole thing. I want to have a new keyboard player. I would like you to find, and you know, he wanted to, he wanted to have um, a black bass player and a black drummer. And this is to do with music. 
I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter or anything else. No. Uh, because, you know, the whole thing about music, if you want to change your style, let's be, let's be really basic about it. If you want to get some really funky stuff going, you get a black bass player and a black drummer because those guys bring the funky shit, you know. <laughs> and, and this is what we wanted to do. Um, so he also wanted to have four black background singers. So immediately we were going to go in a different direction. Um, and he wanted to do an album uh, that was extremely much more soulful. And it was based on people like Sam Cooke, um, you know, soul people that he really dug from, from the 70s, 60s right. and 70s. And um, so that's the kind of thing that it kind of started there. So I would be on the phone talking to people like Jonathan Moffat, um, you know, Sugarfoot, who played with Michael Jackson and different people like that, and getting these different girls together to sing. And and I found it during that time um, a keyboard player by the name of Guy Babylon, um, who I found through working with um, Jay Smith, who worked with Rick Springfield and different people. So it was all this kind of mishmash of, you know, the way it happens where you right. meet somebody and they, they know somebody else. And Guy turned out to be the most phenomenal, phenomenal player. And as I started finding these different people, it just became, well, Elton would call me and say, well, you're the guy because I can't do it. So yeah. will you, and that's what happened. So officially, I think it started appearing in tour programs and stuff, probably the, in the nineties sometime, but it was something that I didn't, put too much stock in. I mean, Elton calls me on stage. He calls me his band leader, which is true, you know, and that's all great. Um, it's a lot more than that because I think when you have the kind of knowledge that I have amassed over the year, and fortunately I have a pretty good memory and I have a pretty good method of passing on. For example, um, I have Elton hates to rehearse. Now, I don't think anybody loves to rehearse, um, but I don't mind it because I'd rather things were, were really good on stage and we started off somewhere good. So I have a piano player, singer called Adam Chester who lives in the LA area, who's a great, wonderful uh, performer in his own right. And he loves our stuff. He loves Elton John music from the, from the beginning. So I use him in, uh, in my rehearsal situations uh, to be my surrogate Elton. And he knows all the songs and what he doesn't know, I tell him, learn this one and he's happy to learn it. So he, bring, he comes to rehearse, so brimming with enthusiasm, which by, by the way, Elton wouldn't do. He hates to rehearse, so he wouldn't be happy about it. <laughs> I know all. I know another so we can relax singer and, that doesn't like to rehearse yeah. either. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But, you know, so it's become a thing that, that um, you know, that, that's actually pleasurable to do. And at the end of a rehearsal period, we know that we have a really good foundation for whatever the next tour is going to bring. And, um, and I couldn't really do that without, without Adam and also without the amazing musicians I have. And, in, 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 you know, the guys that we've had over the years have all been phenomenal. I mean, you know, people like Charlie Morgan, uh, amazing drummer in the time that Naja wasn't around. Um, Charlie played with us. Jonathan Moffat played with us. Jim Jack Bruno from Nashville played with us also. Um, you know, we had Romeo Williams playing bass for a while on albums. We'd use Pino Palladino, but, you know, and, and uh, he almost came on the road with us. And then I found Bob Birch. Oh, my God, another guy we lost, which is heartbreaking. Um, 
you know what? We've lost too many people. It's, no uh, it's, that's been the one huge donor for me now that I can't see Gus, yeah. D, Paul Buckmaster, Guy, Bob. We've lost way too many people, and that's been heartbreaking. And it's been especially difficult for me because I've had to kind of pick up the pieces and find a new guy every time so we can move on. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, well, though just the fact that I love about you is that you give credit and the fact that you can remember everyone's name. I'd appoint you musical director just on the fact that you can remember all of these names, which is amazing. I can remember obscure lyrics to cheap trick songs from back in the early, you know, from back in the late seventies, but I'm bad with names and I apologize for that profusely. But at the same time, the fact that you do, I have so much respect and you know, it, it just goes with a lot of things, but just not just not being the musical director, you earned it. You you earned it through those years, and you've earned it now because you are credited with. I mean, what I I, I put a uh, post up right before we started the interview, and I said, "Look, I have to shave for this." podcast because I feel that I have to actually quite at least look good if, if I'm going to be talking about all these amazing albums and you basically have played on a lot of the soundtrack of my life you know I see things like Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell is one of your album credits um, Hans Zimmer The Lion King you have a you have an album credit for I mean the friggin Lion King um, I mean what is I guess it goes back to some of these iconic solos that you've played over the years. And maybe arguably one of the biggest solos is Funeral for a Friend. And that guitar solo, or you know, is there an influence? Is there a reference point for that solo? Or how did this all come about in some of these solos that you write and construct? Well, it's interesting because as I said earlier, Elton loves to work fast. He hates, he's very impatient. He really is, no matter what the situation is. So when we were doing that track in particular, uh, it was written very quickly. I mean, when you say compose or write, we never really did that. It'd all be on the fly, everything, literally everything we did, no question. Everything would be first take. My solos, 95% of the time would be first take or whatever I was thinking at the time. So in the case of Funeral, um, he'd just written the basic piano part, so there was no top-line melody. There was no melody in it at all. So basically I had to come in with what I considered would be my take on, well, I think the top line of the melody would be this, and that's why it is what it is. It wasn't something that was written, well, we do this, and oh, don't go to that note, play this note. It wasn't like that. It was just the first thing that I played. Um, and you know what? Just to sum up the way this band is, um, I heard an outtake the other day um, from through my friend Greg Penny, who uh, produced one of our albums, Made in England. And Greg's been around for years and years. And he was at some of those sessions. And he has a recording of right before we started Funeral for a Friend in the studio. So the atmosphere was incredibly quiet, incredibly tense. Yeah. And we're, we're all really dialed into this moment, okay? We're really thinking about it. And I can hear Elton's counting, and he's whispering, basically. Wait, he's gone. One, two, three. 
And right before where you hit four, all you hear is, <laughs> and we lost it. We just <laughs> collapsed. Now, this is a guy who, as I said, is quite comical, but I'm afraid if I've, if I've ruined this, this track for all these fans and different people uh, after 40 odd years, I'm really sorry. But to me, it was just a crowning moment of the way he, the way he can be, you know, in the most tense situation and we're all really focused and concentrating. He decides to drop one, you know, and <laughs> it was just, and it's on tape, by the way. Now, I, now, so maybe one day were they you able, guys will hear some. Yeah. Were they able to fix it in the mix? They obviously fixed it in the mix. The old, the age old. <laughs> I would like to slot it in the mix. That would have been amazing. There are many. I mean, that, see, that would be my that would be my pick of um, you know people like Rare Masters and 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 you know deep cuts. Well, to me, that would be a good deep cut. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot. We, I know there are a lot of deep cuts, a lot of funny moments that one day we should bring out as an album. That would, to me, would be a brilliant album that would typify what we were doing in those days. Because really, Ryan, we were having a blast. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I mean, we laughed more than anything else. We had such fun. We drank and smoked and socialized our ways through our hours through making these records and. There was so much good feeling in it because that's the way that's what we were trying to project and i think when you listen to some of these records you can feel that you right. can feel the, the spontaneity that's in there but you can feel the love and the innocence because we weren't guys who were going in there saying we know it all the opposite we were going in there trying stuff that people had never done in the studio before and because of gus dudgeon our, our producer and people like ken scott uh, who, you know, produced Barry as well. I mean, those were the guys we worked with every day in the studio. We were trying new shit out that nobody had ever done. And this was like, it was like being a pioneer because we were blazing new trails, but we were having such a laugh doing it. So nobody was taking it too seriously. Do you think that the movie Rocket Man... As I just pointed out with Elton's uh, intro to do you do you think that the movie Rocket Man captured that energy, or did it did it not even come close to the amount of fun that you guys were actually experiencing? And 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 what what is your take on that whole experience with with watching the movie now? Um, well, I saw it when it you know when it first came out, uh, and um, well, for me, obviously, it's built as a fantasy. And, and when Elton told me some stuff about it before I saw it, he said, you know, this is a fantasy. And chronologically, it's not the way, um, you know, that it happened, obviously. Um, for example, people watching, I know there's been a lot of uh, fans who've watched it and have been disappointed because, you know, when he's doing the Troubadour, for example, in, in the movie version, um, he's doing songs that we did much later, later on, like yeah, four yeah. or five years <laughs> later. And, and, you know, so a lot of people were disturbed uh, by the chronology. Um, and, you know, to be honest, uh, the, the, there's not a mention of any of the, the guys in the band. But speaking the way I, under, I think I understand supposed to be, um, Elton wanted to make that kind of movie. This was the movie he and David wanted to make uh, because it was more or less like an overview of his life as far as his sexuality 
his problems with abuse and addiction and stuff and his recovery and that kind of thing that was what that movie was about it's not by any stretch of the imagination what what went on right. uh, in fact nothing and uh, but um for example on that subject i'm actually doing a i'm in the, in the midst of doing a documentary with um d murray's widow annette um and we've compiled things over the years old footage wow. old photographs interviews with people uh, and you know when 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 this uh if we ever get to finish our farewell tour um i'm going to finish this documentary so in a few years time it'll be more of what actually happened right. it'll be a, a take for for fans and for people as to what really what occurred you know for people who may want to know the the real story yeah well, for us and the listeners that, that I've been able to, you know, that have been watching this whole time and I've just been able to sit here like a fly in the wall and ask you these questions, this is way better than the movie for me. Just to hear it from your mouth, hear how much uh, good energy was was back in those days, how the music actually, it was a hang. It wasn't just business. It was a It was a real lifestyle. And I know that part of you because you come you know from that era and I do too in a way I'm a couple years well you already were making your your first album when I was five years old or your second album but you know we're basically hippies to a certain point and I think the fact that you still have that attitude you still have you know the music in the attitude is part of the entire business as well is what keeps you successful and keeps you going on to this day. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm fortunate. I'm so fortunate and so grateful that I've had a career like this. I mean, it's not ironic that, that we're in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, and this is the thing that has stopped us dead in our tracks. I mean, nothing else really would have would have stopped us i mean i know that elton is is kind of floating around going what happened you know uh <laughs> this no. pandemic has become the great leveler you know we're all on the same boat right now we're all in the same boat and in some ways for guys like me and elton and other performers and yourself we ain't going back to work for a long time because large events are not going to happen until it's entirely safe for the public and for us to go out there and do what it is we we normally do so it's quite remarkable how this has changed but but changed all of us personally i'm happy for the little break right now i can be with my family i can really spend time focusing with them uh, i'm a big family guy i've had i've been fortunate enough to have uh, many kids and and right now in my house i've got three of my kids um by my wife kay and um and that couldn't be you know that life doesn't get any better than that um but going back to what you were saying yeah, I, I, I've had a lifestyle where I've been able to totally dial into it. You know, I get up, I think about what my, my job is, what my life is, and I react accordingly. I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate also to have quite a, uh, or I've been given quite a quite a, a, a strong spiritual foundation. So I tend not to get too carried away uh, about what, what I'm about. It's, it's really, a, I always like to see the big picture. I think that's what's important in life um you know if you disappear up your own asshole you're not going to find out what everybody else somebody else is thinking um <laughs> and i think that happens a lot in music yeah. 
and politics. You know, people tend to get very full of what, you know, that's what happens. And, and uh, so I've been very fortunate to be to have been given that. And I think most of that I've been given actually from my kids. My mm-hmm. kids keep me real, you know. Well, the fact that you've been able to spend this time with us and even just telling your stories, for me, this is a concert in many ways because it's a concert of your career. It's a, it's, it, I know that the music might be missing, but the stories, I'm, I'm closing my eyes. I'm still, I'm coming back to that album. I'll probably go back to it after uh, we finish this podcast out and I'll be listening to Rock of the Westies. I know that a lot of the people listening right now on to the podcast will go and figure out their favorite Elton uh, album or perhaps their favorite uh any album that Davy Johnstone has played on, you know, just again, folks, just Google the name and you can go down a really nice rabbit hole of some incredible type of music. A lot of different artists, people that I didn't even mention, like the Pointer Sisters and Bob Seger. I mean, there's the, the list goes on and on, but the fact that you're so humble about it and have had such a, uh, a career of longevity and I, I just appreciate you being on the show. I really do. And I want to give people a chance to um, find out about your social media because if you're not uh, following Davy John Stone at this exact moment in time, you are now because uh, Vic is going to put out those, uh, put up those links right now. And maybe for the folks li- listening on uh, Spotify or Apple or any of the other podcast platforms, you can say what they are, Davy. What are your Instagram and your Facebook? Well, Ryan, I don't do any of those social media things. I personally don't do any of them. Um, but yeah, my, my daughter and, and my wife tends to tell me what's going on with my Instagram page. And my son, Tam, who's in the southwest of England down in Cornwall, he normally handles Facebook inquiries for me. And then maybe once every few months, he'll say, oh, my God, Dad, we got all this stuff. You've got to, you've got to read these questions and read these beautiful comments from people and answer some of them i'm terrible i'm the absolute worst at doing this and that's why my my kids again have become really important because i'm really i haven't come up um you know i'm not of this age really i mean i i I can basically do this i can log on to this thing and i can I can do Zoom meetings with some buddies and, and with my family occasionally, but I am not a child of this age at all. You know, I got stuck somewhere back in the in the seventies, I think. And and um, but yeah, it's wonderful. I think it's amazing that you have this medium. That's a guy like you is out here doing a show like this, where where you can educate people about about you know maniacs like me and what I may have done. And and to me, it's wonderful because I can tell my story a little bit uh, in a modern forum, which. Uh, you know, usually I'm used to doing a one-on-one interview in a room with people, and that's fine, but it can be a bit odd at the time, too. Well, you know what? Artists like you are what keeps the torch of rock and roll going. And I, and you know what? I'm going to say these social media links, whether you like it or not. So I will put them up. Uh, Vic, put them up one more time because I know that Instagram is at Davy Johnstone <laughs> and Facebook is Davy Johnstone. Folks, you are starting to follow it right now. And there was a great comment just put up by Robert uh, Schlock, Schlalch. I can never say Robert's name right. And I know that because he's painted many amazing guitars and built some amazing Gibson for me he's actually built a 335 that I play to this day on stage with Alice and just one more point about Alice and social media not only does Alice 
a couple of years ago, he came up to me and he said, check this out. I actually have one. And it was a cell phone. Do you actually have a cell phone, Davey? <laughs> That's how old school Alice is. <laughs> That's, that kind of sounds like me. Um, no, it's funny because my daughter always said, you know what, Dad, you actually are way better at this than you let on, you know. So I, I think for me it's kind of like I'm just lazy about, about this kind of stuff, you know, I, a little bit. But, um, yeah, you know, great comment, Robert. I, I, you know, the Gibson Custom Shop, unbelievable the stuff they've done for me. I mean, over the years, right from the early days, because way back in the 70s, in the days when if a band was, was really hot and really happening, companies like Gibson or Fender, you know, the big boys, would send you like a free guitar, like a guitar just to play, to advertise their product. And, you know, but that kind of went away quite a while ago, probably about 15, you know, 15 20 years ago. I Again, know why. Unless a band is I know why. <laughs> I know. I know why that you all do? went away. Yeah, I know why. Tell it, me. Two words. Izzy Stradlin. Izzy Stradlin from Guns N' Roses, because I love the guy, but he used to come up to me and he used to say, dude, they're giving me all these great guitars and I just pawn them and, you know, do my thing. And so they, the whole artist relations thing has come back a little bit. But, and, and you know what, Izzy, if you're listening, call me out on it, but it's true. It happened back in the day. I remember you used to tell me that stuff, but it's all good. Um, but, but the relationship that you have with the Les Paul, the Les Paul has been one of your weapons of choice and you have so many great pictures with it. Is it always been a Les Paul through a Marshall or I know that you also have some Hughes and Kentner amps. Is there something new that you're using? What has been your sort of guitar amp combo? Because I know there's a lot of players out there that always are searching for that combo. Even as much as I tell them it's between the head and the heart and the hand, it's the, the the tools do have something to do with it as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously, yeah, massive part, especially live. Um, because in the, in the studio, I always, over the years, I would use all kinds of combinations. I would use Fender Champs, you know, tiny, I would use a pig nose. I use layer pig noses and stuff like that. All kinds of bizarre things. And, and you know, AC30s. I used to love box AC30s. Um, problem is, over the years, I have lost so many instruments and old vintage amps that have been stolen. Really? And that really hurts. Oh, it really killed my 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 love of early love of collecting vintage guitars. You know, I mean, I bought some guitars from you know George Gruen in Nashville in the way you know probably nineteen seventy two. And one was like a, a real early uh, gold top, Les Paul, and um, and like six months later, it was stolen, you know, in in uh, during a tour in the UK, along with a couple of these basses and some of Nigel's drums and an ancient Gibson mandolin that I had. So, you know, I kind of got out of doing that. I don't collect uh, per se, right. um, but now I have so many guitars from those days. They're now vintage. <laughs> I've had them for so long, you know. But now, nowadays, I'm I'm still using the the Houston Kettner amps, which I I love their products. And uh, a lot of companies though have stopped being very giving with their 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 stuff. And and um, well, of course, right now during this pandemic, everything has just stopped, obviously for good reason. But Hughes and Kettner also make a couple of my favorite um, stomp pedals that I use. Uh, one is a imitation. 
Leslie cabinet, sound, which <laughs> Ro- I used a lot on albums. The yeah, Rotosphere. Do you use one of those? The, well, I have the. I have the. I That's thought they the one, stopped man. making it. They stopped making it because of, of the, with the, it had the little tube in it as well, right? The little glowing tube. I remember that one. I still have it. That's it's the one. Mm. Mm. There you go. Uh, a phenomenal one, and and also they, they have a they have like a a, a crunch pedal that's like that also with the tube in it. Uh, and you know they got a tube driver. That, but the, the Leslie, the, the Rotosphere. I've used that. I have about four of them. Thank God, because that's where they all went. Tap into them. <laughs> I tried to get. I tried to get another one. They said, me. "Yeah, sorry, we don't have any more." Oh, Davy Johnstone has them all. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but it's funny because um, well, on that, I'll tell you a funny story there to do with drummers that that um, Nigel uh, Nigel all. And always used uh, Ringo's drumsticks, and he began buying them up in bulk, you know, years and years ago. And finally, Ringo could never find his own sticks, <laughs> and it was like because Nigel had them all, you know. It's simple as that. You know, I love Richard. So I, Ringo to me, I mean, there's the drummer, there's the arranger of all time. I mean, not only do I adore him as a person, but, but I mean, what a drummer and um, the stuff he, he did with the Beatles. I mean, I'm a Beatles nut. I always have been. And I keep finding out more stuff, actually the way they really did things, more than I actually even thought. I thought I was some kind of a Beatles, you know, I knew how they did this. I knew nothing, you know, and, and what I'm getting out of hearing uh, Giles Martin's uh, stories and remixes and the different versions he's done of Beatles stuff, just exactly how amazing those guys were. And I've always thought they were unbelievably incredible and the buck stops with them. Uh, uh, To me, they're the the template of rock and roll. That's it. Um, But for example, because I have such a close rapport with my guitar tech, uh, Rick Salazar, who I always maintain is like 50% of what I do on stage. He really is because I couldn't do what I do on stage without him. And in the studio, we work very closely together, but he designed a couple of amps um, with his partner, uh, Steve Deacon. They, they, they designed a couple of amps, uh, rock and roll doctor amps back five or six years ago. And uh, I have, I have a few of their amps. Uh, there's a sailor and a rock air and stuff. But the, my favorite is a little 18 watt. Um, it's brilliant. It's a little pink amp um, <laughs> with gold grill. I mean, it's just so camp. You wouldn't believe it. But this thing sounds, it's a beast, you know. Right. So Check Rick knows what I, what I like. And, and it was Rick who tied together our my thing with the Gibson Custom Shop with um, Bernie Toppin. Because Bernie's painted a few uh Bernie came at me with an idea, you know, what if we use some of my artwork and then you put them on your guitars. So between Bernie's um, amazing um, artwork, we've had a couple of guitars, which um, was one of those guitars that got the Captain Fantastic. Was one of them the Captain Fantastic Les Paul or not? Actually, no, that was done. Rick had that done privately uh, by an artist by, I believe her name was, um pam i can't think of her last name right now okay it will come to me at some point but she shot. did that years and years ago rick had it done uh, especially for a captain fantastic 
anniversary show we're doing. I think it was probably the 30 or 35 or something. And Rick got it done. And that actually is Rick's guitar because he bought it himself from Gibson. And then he had Pam uh, had it painted and she did one of those rap jobs on it. Um, but the, the two guitars that I'm talking about recently are, um, are guitars that Gibson actually painted. So I've used them live and, and um, one of them is uh, We Wave the Flag, which is, uh, and it's got the stars and stripes to the back. And obviously Bernie wrote Philadelphia Freedom. So of one of the lines is We Wave the Flag and it's got this amazing uh, paint job. And the other one is uh, Goodbye, which is uh, obviously from Goodbye Yellowbit Road. And um, Gibson did a, a remarkable job on on that guitar. That's since been bought by by a collector. Actually, I know the guy. Uh, <laughs> Charlie bought that guitar, and uh, and he has it. And he, he's so sweet. He always says to me, you know, if you ever want to use that guitar again, you can have it. And you know, that's very cool. But but I, I've got enough guitars right now. Wow. I, I mean, we're just hanging out with a uh, longtime Elton John guitar player and, of course, Alice Cooper alumni, plus many other bands, guitarist J.V. Johnstone. He's been our guest on In the Trenches. Um, I'm just so impressed at how much thanks you give to everyone involved in your circle. I should do the same, and I try to remember to do the same. I want to thank Federock, who has been monumental in putting the word out about this podcast the last few days obviously Vic Chalfant everybody that's on the RGA team that's what that's in the chat right now with Robbie and Davey and Scotty and of course everyone that's in the chat right now thank you guys for hanging around um, we've been talking yeah I mean we're going over time but I love it because you know talking guitars and icons and there's so many great comments that are coming in um i just want to perhaps again leave on a good note because i know that you guys were in the midst of your elton john farewell tour when everything sort of shut down is there plans right now for 2021 to sort of close it out and is that going to be um is that in talks or are we still in this limbo sort of holding pattern right now? And I got him, I got uh, Davey to freeze a little bit for me. That's okay. Maybe Vic, you can take him out and take him back in again, if that's all right. Man, I had this great big ending sort of spiel and then Davey froze on me, but it was good. He was stoic. He looked very, very proud. And if that's the last that we have of Davey, because he's still frozen there, but hopefully he can come back on. Folks, again, I really appreciate you hanging out this entire time of this episode of In the Trenches. We've had Davey Johnstone, longtime um, Elton John guitar player, and as well as so many other bands. Like I said, go down that rabbit hole. Follow him on his socials, which is at Davy Johnson on Instagram and uh, Davy Johnson on Facebook as well. Um, it's been more than a pleasure. Hopefully, we can get Davy back on to say one more quick goodbye to all of you. But again, thanks, Paris. Thank you for all your comments. Um, very and truly inspiring is the way I would say this whole episode went today. Um, I'm going to go listen to some great albums. I'm just going to go down that Davy Johnstone rabbit hole because if you want to hear great parts, uh, 
what I always say, parts that complement the song, make the song better. That's Davy Johnstone's work. And um, it was a little bit, a bit of a pity that we couldn't uh, say our final goodbye to him. But you know what? We've been on for, we've been blessed <laughs> to be on with for more than an hour and 15. And you know what? When we get the old schooler classic rockers, sometimes the Wi-Fi does not always cooperate with us. All right. Uh, hashtag never forget Michael DeBar interview. Um, but I can't uh, tell you guys how much I appreciate the support you've given uh, in the trenches podcast. Tell some people about it again. If you're just uh, tuning in or if you're new to the show, uh, just hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel or if you're watching Facebook live and if you're just watching on Apple or Stitcher or uh, Spotify, why don't you uh, make your way on over to uh, live in the trenches on the official Ryan Roxy YouTube channel. There's a bunch of other episodes. I see Davey is uh, sort of on again. I see a um, black screen, but is it going to come on again? We will try it one last time. If not, I will say goodbye. Um, but there he is, um, <laughs> in full support of Black Lives Matter and um, <laughs> black screen that he did maybe a couple Tuesdays ago. Uh, Davey, I really appreciate you having been on in the trenches, folks. Uh, until next time, until next week, and actually next week, our live stream episode will feature uh, YouTube phenomenon Marty Schwartz. So we will start promoting that right away. But Thanks again for hanging out with me. I'm your host, Ryan Roxy. You've been listening to In the Trenches with J.V. Johnstones. Until next time, folks, enjoy the ride. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Oh, man. Come on, man. Where is he? Where is Davey? <laughs>